Hello everybody, this is Jake McGrail of CITR Sports Broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the unceded grounds of the Musqueam people. You're listening to Thunderbird Eye on CITR 101.9, always keeping you up to date with the latest UBC Thunderbirds news and stories. For this week's show, Mike Liu sat down with former Thunderbird and Canadian Olympic race walker Evan Dunphy to discuss his athletic beginnings, his time at UBC, and how the pandemic has affected his preparations for the upcoming Olympics. Elsewhere, a UBC coach received an award for their fantastic work in our community, and we go back over a hundred years for our Thunderbird alum of the week. But first, here is Mike's interview with Evan Dunphy. Hey everyone, welcome to CITR Thunderbird Eye for a feature interview. My name is Michael, and today I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest. He's an Olympian, a Pan Am gold medalist, a world bronze medalist, part-time writer, and someone who walks faster than most people can run. Um, his name is Evan Dunphy, and thanks again for setting aside your time uh, in your really busy life. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. It should be a fun <laughs> chat. Of course, of course. Um, and again, so for people who don't know, uh, Evan here is uh, an Olympic race walker. And so for the uninitiated and people who aren't as familiar, um, can you explain what race walking is and how you got into it? Uh, yeah, for so for, for the uninitiated, I like to explain uh, race walking simply as it's running with rules. Uh, when you're running, you're basically jumping from step to step. Um, race walking is the progression of steps where you know, one foot is, is always in contact with the ground. There's a bit of a caveat to that that, that I'll touch on in a second, but um, essentially that's, that's the first rule. And then the second rule is that our leg has to be straight at the knee when it touches the ground. And so when you run, you land with a, you know, you land on your fort, you either land on your heel or your forefoot, but you land with a bent, a bent knee to absorb some of that shock. And then, you know, use that spring to bounce yourself back up to the next step. Race walking, we land on our heel with a nice straight leg and then pull our body through and then push off on our toes. So the foot kind of rolls from the heel to the toe. We use our hips a lot. So everyone, you know, people that are my age, uh, I'm 30 this year, pretty much everyone's race walking knowledge comes from uh malcolm malcolm in the middle where hal uh hal starts race walking he's got this big speed suit on he's got the helmet uh, aerodynamic helmet and all that stuff uh, we don't wear aerodynamic helmets but um <laughs> you know or we do swivel our hips and uh and all that stuff so those are basically the two rules when you see us on on tv usually it's like once every four years at the olympics they'll show you like five minutes of race walking coverage and they'll show you these slow motion replays of our feet where they'll show that both feet are off the ground and so the caveat to that first rule is that um, we have to have both feet on the ground as judged by the human eye. So we have like seven judges around the course. So we race on like a one or a 2K loop. So, you know, I race 50 kilometers uh, and I'll do that on like a 2K loop. So there's 25 laps around and uh, it's pretty monotonous, but we do that so that you can have like seven or eight judges who are watching your every step. And um, if they think that you have two feet off the ground, they can give you a warning. If you get three warnings, you're disqualified. But um, basically on slow motion, we're all off the ground because the human eye just kind of sucks and can't measure things that quickly as, as quickly as cameras can. So uh, the human eye can measure about four hundredths of a second. And we tend to be, you know, the best race walkers tend to be off the ground for eh, roughly four hundredths of a second. Um, so kind of the, the limit of what the human eye can, uh, can process. That is horrendously complicated, but sounds definitely definitely check it out because it is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a, that's why I, that's why I sort of say for the uninitiated, I say it's running with rules. <laughs> <laughs> it 
so how did you get into the sport? Like, it's not something that's really commonplace here, uh, especially in North America. No. So, um, so I started race walking. I started running when I was nine. Uh, so I was the shortest kid in the class, red curly hair, big, thick Coke bottle glasses. Uh, like I was your, that, that quintessential, like nerdy kid who, who gets picked last for, for sports. Um, the problem with that was that I absolutely loved sport. Like I just, it was, I just, it was the best. I like, I loved every sport I played. I loved everything I tried, but I was pretty rubbish at all of them. Um, and then one day my elementary school had this pops, started this popsicle stick run where you run laps in the field at lunch and you get popsicle sticks for every lap you run and you turn them into your teacher at the end of, end of lunch. And, you know, they record it and you work towards milestones of running. You know, you get badges if you run a hundred K throughout the year, or a little trophy if you run 200 K throughout the year. And, so I, I went out one day and gave that a try at lunch. And to my surprise, I ran the entire lunch hour without stopping. It wasn't very fast, but, you know, I was able to sort of slow and steady and, and didn't have to stop to walk at any point. And I was like, oh, okay. And turned my popsicle sticks in. And my teacher was like, wow, that's really it. That's, that's a lot of laps. Um, so I was like, oh, sweet. Okay, I'm kind of good at this. And, you know, unlike, unlike uh, you know, playing football or, or soccer or anything, there's no balls hitting me in the face. So I couldn't break my glasses. Uh, <laughs> So I was pretty hooked and, and I came back the next day and the next day and the next day and, um, you know, came back after the Friday and came back on the Monday and, you know, I'd run a lap further than I had run the previous week and I'd seen myself getting better and I was hooked on this idea that like, okay, I put all this effort in and the outcome was so easy to see, you know, you try really hard, you run a full extra lap, like that was pretty cut and dry, like I've gotten better. Um, so I joined a track club and um, my, bro my older brothers did the same thing and uh, the next year when I was 10, my older brother had his appendix taken out his high school. Uh, he was in grade eight. His high school track coach was like, Oh, well, there's this weird thing called a race walk. Like maybe it won't pull on your stitches so much cause it doesn't jostle your stomach. And so you can like, you know, maintain your fitness. And then when your stitches heal, you come back to running. So he was like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll give that a try. And goes out to his first race and, and wins a medal in his first race, race walking. And I mean, there was probably only three kids in the race, but still he won a medal. Uh, I got him to show me the technique and I went to my first race and I remember standing on the start line. The kid next to me was the kid who wins all the races. And he looked at me, the new kid. And he's like, Oh, what do you want to do? I was like, Oh, I don't know. I, I panicked. I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't thought about it. So I was like, uh, five minutes. It was an 800 meter race. I just blurted up five minutes. I want to break five minutes. He was like, Oh, well, you'll never done your first try. And I beat that kid and I went 458. Oh. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be a race walker. Like that was kind of the start. And, and from then, like, you know, from, from nine, 10 years old, like I, I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted to go to the Olympics one day. I didn't really know what that meant, but my dad had coached at the Olympics in 1972 in swimming. And I'd grown up like hearing stories about the Olympics and it sounded, sounded pretty fun. So I thought, oh, okay, I want to do that. And, and that kind of became the goal. And you know, as I got older and, and learned more about what that was and what the commitment took, and it only strengthened my resolve to, to want to do that. And, uh, and yes, and 16 years later, I, I made that dream come true. Just why not be an Olympian, if, especially in race walk, right? Yeah, whatever, whatever gets you there. <laughs> so what was it like then um, competing for UBC? Like, when, especially when you came here, I'm assuming that you race walked for UBC and probably ran some events as well. Yeah, so I was not an academically inclined high school student, unfortunately. Um, I just didn't have many, many mentors, many teachers who kind of instilled uh, a desire for learning in me, unfortunately. And um, 
my my track club coach uh, had had quit and moved on to different that's moved moved elsewhere when I was in grade ten or eleven, and so the UBC coach uh, Merrick Jedrzejczyk, um, who was a KJAC coach back in the day as well, like he kind of said, okay, well, like here, there's this group of you know five or six athletes who have, don't have a coach that they can come train with with me with the UB, with the university kids or guys and girls and um, and so that was I like, kind of came out and started training with the UBC team when I was in grade eleven I think and. I just remember Merrick being like, so you're going to come to UBC, right? And I was like, oh, I've never, I've, I've, what, what's that? Like, what do I have to do to get there? And he kind of told me near the end of grade 11, like what my grades had to be. And I was like, oh, crap. Okay. Let's, you know, let's, let's, um, let's try to get there. And I, I, you know, scraped through grade 12, like just barely getting the, the minimum I needed to get into to UBC. And so I remember that, on Imagine Day, my first year of university, I, I had met a couple of the other incoming track athletes at a training camp the weekend before. And, and so we were sitting together in, in War Memorial for the Imagine Day celebrations. And we were sitting up at the top of the bleachers. And I remember the president of, of arts being like, and you know, you all achieved X average to get here. And we just started bursting out laughing at the back of the bleachers, knowing that like, I got into university because I could walk fast. Like <laughs> I got there, I got into school based on my athletic achievements, not on my academic achievements. And uh, I was, you know, so I was pretty determined to prove that I belonged at university um, academically. Um, so I was, I was really lucky. I, I kind of was able to turn school into a competition and, 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 you know, send some of my competitive juices <laughs> um, uh, that I had a lot of into, into, into academics and into my schooling and, and was able to like turn it around and prove to myself that, that I belong there and got into kinesiology and all that stuff and ended up graduating, graduating with a degree in kin. And, um, it was, it was great, but, um, that, you know, that I, UBC, like that experience was, I came here as an athlete and definitely feel like I left the school. Definitely like that student athlete part, the student definitely like took so much precedent over, over being an athlete. And I love my time as an athlete. I, I competed at the NAIA championships uh, three times at the UBC, set the NAIA record, which still stands. Um, absolutely. Like my best friends are, are, are my teammates from that, from that time. And, and absolutely love my experience with the track team. And I feel so old now because I go back and <laughs> like my first year at UBC, like we didn't have a track. There was no, there was no, like the Rash Paul Dillon um, track wasn't there. Uh, so we, trained train? at we trained at Minaru in Richmond. Um, was that the closest track? That, that was the closest track that we used. Yeah, it was, um, I have a really fun story. Um, so my teammate, Nyaki Gomez and I, like, we didn't really need to be on the track. We could do all our stuff on the road. Right. But part of the deal was you have to be at the track for practice. Um, so I remember in first year, I would give my warm clothes to one of my teammates living also in Vignier, and then... I'd meet with Anaki and we would walk a long green drive um, over, uh, over the Oak Street Bridge and then down three road and walk to Minru. About, it was about 20K. What? <laughs> and it was dark and you're walking down Marine Drive before the new bike lanes were put in. Like it was dangerous. It was not that a safe thing to be doing. But risky. we would get there and this was before the Canada line as well. So we'd get there and by the time we got there, I only had to leave about 10 minutes before my teammate left because he had to walk from Vanier walk to the bus loop, 
get on the bus, bus to Granville, get on the 98B line down Granville, get off at Richmond Center, and then walk from Richmond Center over to Minaru. It took him just a little bit less time than it took for, for Naki and I to walk from UBC to Minaru. No way. <laughs> then we'd, so we'd get there, we, I'd get my warm clothes, I'd put my warm clothes on, we'd say hi to the coach, we'd spend five minutes at the track, say, oh, we're here, we're at the track, and then we'd go and bus home. <laughs> and that was... That, that, that was how we justify being showing up for the, to, to track practice, but having already done our 20K workout. So, you know, the, 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 the incoming students at, and athletes at UBC don't realize how lucky they are to have uh, a track there now and change rooms. We didn't have change rooms my entire time we were there. So winter training was you put your stuff under the bleachers and hope it stays dry. Oh, wait, in, oh, especially under the uh, Richmond ones, right? It's like, it's basically no covering at all. Yeah, so e even when at, at the Rash Paul Dillon track, like we had, there was no, no bleachers. So, or there's there's no change room. So you just yeah. show up and practice. And uh, it was, so the kid, they're lucky. They're, they, they don't realize how good they have it these days. <laughs> especially with that newfangled yeah. training ascendant they have there now. <laughs> I feel so old, uh, back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> That's only eight years ago, or <laughs> give or take. Uh, so I have to ask you, when did you really start representing Canada? Like, when did you get picked up? Like, hey, this guy can walk really fast. Can you represent us walking really fast? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the best thing about track and field um, is that it's, making teams is, is so cut and dry. It's, you know, we have a standard. Uh, if, if you make that standard, then you're, you know, you can be selected. We, most teams, you can select up to three athletes. Um, and in Canada, like, we don't have the depth where most events, like, we don't have three athletes we don't have more than three athletes who, who make that standard. So if you make the standard, you're on the team pretty much. Um, unlike, you know, it, it's so it's the politics of it is so less than team sports where, you know, you, you have to be, you have to know the right coach and you have to know the selectors and you have to like, you know, there's so much that goes on with it. Whereas yeah, track and is like, Oh, you did the time. Okay, sweet. You're selected. So um, my first national team was in 2006 was a U.S. Canada dual meet um for for junior athletes and that was like the first time i got to put on the canada singlet it was amazing like the coolest thing ever you got this package in the mail with your you know all of your team canada stuff your singlet and and your shorts and your t-shirts and your your you know, your your sweat your tracksuit and stuff like that it was the coolest thing ever and went to this race and and i was 15 i hadn't turned 16 yet so i was 15 at the time and i was racing against 19 year olds and we were in minneapolis and so it was the you know one of the first times I'd gotten to travel and it was my first ever 10k race and I have put that single on first time ever representing Canada first ever 10k race I'm with the pack I'm going it's going all right I'm having a pretty good race comes up to the last 50 meters you know I'm 9.95k into this race and the judge comes out and gives me the red paddle and disqualifies me oh. It was the most heartbreaking thing ever. Like I just basically just ran two kilometers down this, down this path in, in Minneapolis and just found a spot on the side of the road and just like sat down and cried under a bridge for, for 20 minutes and then slinked my way back to, uh, the, to the race course. And it was, you know, it was such, it was so brutal that, you know, that first time getting to represent my country, having to, you know, face that disqualification next to my name and uh it was a huge learning experience i mean i, I bounced back from that the next year I, I qualified for the world youth championships and after that i qualified for the world junior championships and then 
in 2010, I made my first senior team. That was the Commonwealth Games uh, that were in, uh, in, in Delhi, in India. So I missed, oh. it, was in, it was in October, so I missed, had to miss three weeks of school. And um, I remember going to my profs and, and being in Ken, I was pretty confident they were going to be fine with me missing school. And I had an English lit prof. I was really scared because I was like, oh, he, he might not understand. Like, he might not have the same understanding as the, as the Ken profs have. And I was really nervous going to ask him and his response was well you're not coming back early on account of school are you like if you have a chance like you're gonna be in like in one of the coolest cities in the world like if you have a chance to like stay like a little bit longer and like enjoy it like don't come back on my account <laughs> and I was like, that was the coolest answer i'd ever expected from a prop like it was it was amazing it was it was so cool but um yeah i, I had to come home because i had a sports psych midterm the next day and uh oh. Uh, I was very jet lagged. It was very brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest, like if your brain's not working for that, oh, that, that, that's a rough time. Uh, so you're qualified for the Olympics and again, 200 days away from the Olympics again, which is kind of a surreal thing to say. Um, can you shed some light on your preparation for these games? Like, has anything changed from this point last year to now? Yeah, I mean, this time, uh, you know, in this time in this time last year, thinking, okay, like I was just getting ready to head to Australia. I had head to Australia in mid December last year. Was down there for two and a half months, getting ready, and and now it was that's a normal that's a normal preparation for me. I head down to Australia. I don't like being cold, so pretty much every winter <laughs> I head down to Australia and uh, and train with guys, and, and we'll get a group together of like twenty guys from all around the world, and it's the coolest thing ever. You train with, you know, there's there's half you know a dozen countries represented um of guys that will train with it's it's pretty awesome so you know i was getting ready to head down there and um thinking that all right like here is my schedule for 2020 and, and i had all these races lined up and you know got home in at the end of february and and in march thinking oh, oh well this this pandemic thing is not looking great but like they're not going to cancel the olympics like <laughs> The IOC, you know, the IOC doesn't care about athlete health. They care about money. Like they're going to lose money if they cancel the Olympics. They're not going to do that. And then, and then of course, Canada became the first country to pull out and it was absolutely the right decision. And, um, you know, that was made, made you really proud to be Canadian um, because it was the first time, first country that was like, well, no, we're actually going to put health ahead of, um, you know, ahead of this whole like money-making thing. Um, and that kind of forced the hand of the IOC and the IOC delayed it. And then, yeah, this entire year has just been weird since then. <laughs> like having nothing to train for, no goals. Like my my training in, in May was my biggest ever month of mileage um, because I just didn't really know what else to do. I just kept going out and training. And I think I did like 740K of walking um, because I just didn't know what else to do. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, it's, been, it's been a really interesting year because without having those goals, I'm usually so driven by like I realized that I really do enjoy the training and I do enjoy like that aspect of it not just the the goal you know the, the working towards those goals like I enjoy getting out and doing the day-to-day -day training um, it felt like I had a whole summer where I was just exercising rather than training and that was really strange but it was interesting it was it was neat and I learned a lot about myself and you know heading into hopefully an Olympics next next summer um, things are looking good it's looking like Fingers crossed. Will, will happen. Fingers crossed. Um, you know, things will be a bit different. Like I won't 
be lucky enough to head down to Australia um, next month, which really sucks. Um, so I'm looking at a, you know, a winter of dark, cold, wet miles at home um, by myself, which is a lot harder than, you know, training in 35 degree weather with some of the best athletes in the world and, and having them push you each and every day. So, you know, motivation is going to be uh, a bit harder to come by, but you know, that's a, that's a challenge. And that's something that like, I'll, you know, try to rise, rise to the occasion and, and make the most of it. And, and then other than that, it'll just be like any other training year where we're just, everything comes down to trying to be as fit as I possibly can be on uh, August 6th or whatever day I race on now. Oh, definitely. So like, what kind of adjustments have you like made? Like, We've heard about like how Damian Warner can get into uh, Western because of COVID, and now he's like had to broker a deal for you. Like I'm assuming that you've just been running around Richmond this entire time. Yeah, I've, I've you know race walking and distance runners, and and we've been we've been the lucky ones in that like most of our training and almost all of my training is just putting on my shoes and heading out the door. Um, so, you know, while everything was shut down, like I was still able to do most of my training. Um, I didn't have access to my strength coach or, um, you know, or my, uh, my physio or my massage and all that stuff, but I was still able to do the bulk of my actual training. Um, whereas, you know, the swimmers, the, the, the place they spend six hours a day training was taken away from them. Um, so the adjustment was, you know, was, was way, way, way bigger. Um, you know, for me, the adjustment was quite small and, and I was able to, to you know accordingly um make the most of it and, and kind of deal with it quite easily um so that, that you know i i've considered myself one of the lucky ones in terms of the adjustments that i had to make um obviously the adjust the, the bigger picture adjustments that meant you know not being able to travel and 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 train with the the guys that i would normally train with um has probably been the hardest and you know certainly certainly like miss that aspect of it but um you know, it's, that's, it's a pretty minuscule sacrifice at the end of the day. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, it, it's great because you've been posting all about it on your Instagram and it's like, it's been great to see that you're still like getting out and still going at it. Um, you mentioned like how the games would look pretty different. Um, what kind of changes are you expecting? I know it's like pretty early and everything, but is there anything that you would like to see or are anticipating to see? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I mean, so we've already, I mean, the race walk, even before the pandemic, like already had some big changes thrust upon it. Um, So we were us in the marathons got back in last November, got pushed to Sapporo uh, about 800 kilometers North of Tokyo um, for some asinine reasons that, that just don't need to go into, but they don't make any sense. Um, so like we were already prepared to not be a part of the Olympics proper um, anyways. Um, and now it looks like, you know, I, I suspect, um, you know, I sus- and one of the things that really sucks is that like one of the things I love about race walking is I, I have a lot of issues with the Olympics and the IOC and, and, you know, the impact the Olympic games have on, um, on cities and on, you know, the, the inequity that they, um, that they kind of further. Um, and one of the redeeming qualities that I'm able to sort of hang my hat on is that the race walk is this free event that doesn't take up much space. It doesn't require massive mega construction. It doesn't push people you know, out of the city. It's, it takes up one kilometer of road that just needs some barricades around it. And 
it's a free event where anyone can come and watch. So, you know, the, the people from the Flavellas in Rio that they're not, they, they can't go watch Usain Bolt run uh, the hundred meter final, but they can come and they can watch the, you know, the race walk and the marathon and the, the triathlon and cycling. And there's, there's a few events that they can, they that are free to watch um, and still be a part of, of the magic that is the Olympics and still be able to like see up close and personal, like, you know, you can get within two feet of, uh, of the athletes on the race walk course. Uh, I remember high-fiving my brother, like as I came through in Tokyo or in Rio in one of the early laps, like you can, so you can really be up close and personal and feel, you know, have that feeling and know what it's like. So that's something that I, I absolutely love about my event is being able to like share that event with everybody, you know, regardless of, um, of you know, ability to, to buy into it basically. Um, and that's great. Cause they're the ones that are paying for it. The tax, you know, it's, a, it's, everyone should have access to it because the citizens of the city are the ones paying for it. And that's what sucks for me. That's what sucked about being in Sapporo was that like, okay, well the people of Tokyo are paying for the Olympics and now they don't get to, to, to take a part of these five events, the, the race walks and the marathons. And now that's been taken one step further where you have this idea of like, we're going to have an Olympics without spectators. You know, that, that looks pretty clear that that's going to be one of the biggest things that we have is there's going to be no spectators or, or very, very limited spectators. Um, and it's a really hard thing to reckon with because, you know, what's, what's the point? <laughs> you know, what, if, if, you know, if I, if you're not out there doing it, like it's great to go out there and to strive to win medals and to be, I want to be the best, race walker in the world i want to break world records and, and win gold medals like that's my personal goal but it's kind of all for naught if you're all if there's not some aspect of like inspiring the next generation to to be active healthy fit like like if you're not doing that like as it's why 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 are you why are you doing yeah. it so it, it is a, it's a really hard thing to to reconcile and i think it's going to be tough for a lot of athletes to come to terms with that but beyond that you know what it's going to look like in terms of athlete village bubbles and this that, you know, thing like I, I don't we don't have a ton of information yet but it's I mean it's you kind of just roll with the punches you kind of just I, I have so much faith in our Canadian uh, medical staff that like you know they're not going to put us in a situation where they think that we're unsafe um, so um, you just kind of like take their lead and you listen to them and if they say this is how things work and it's safe then you kind of you know, we have no reason not to trust them. So um, we just kind of, yeah, take, take our marching order, marching orders from that. You will. Like, yeah, I can definitely relate. Cause like I was supposed to go as a volunteer with you guys and uh, I had my train ticket booked to Sapporo and everything for to watch a race walk. Cause like I'm there already may as well see it. But um, when I got the email that Canada was pulling out, it was uh, canceling the tickets was like pretty hard, but at the end of the day, it's, it was the right call. And uh, I'm just hoping that some sort of the Olympics, like even though there can't be any live spectators, I'm still hoping you guys can still inspire people just by going about your sports, you know, like, yeah. And I mean, you touched on something there, like being a volunteer and like, you know, being a volunteer from, from Canada and going over, like think about all the other volunteers from all around the world that are going over to be a part of this. And, and you think back to Vancouver in 2010, like how often do you still see people walking around in their volunteer jackets from, from the Olympics? Like, you know, beyond what was created by, you know, by the athletes, like there was an absolute definite magic that was created by the volunteers. And um, we had the 10 year anniversary in, in February at the, you know, out at the, um, at the flame. And, um, 
it was so cool to see all these, you know, the volunteers that have kept in touch over the years and are still like, you know, still have gone to volunteer at, you know, whether it be the, the, the rugby sevens or the volleyball or, or whatever it was, it, this whole new, you know, generation of, of, of you know, sports, um, sport volunteers and sport lovers and, and, and a sense of community that was, was built from it. Um, I don't think that gets talked about enough because I think that's, you know, that's one of the more special things that came out of the Vancouver games in my mind is, is the sense of community that was fostered and it was fostered primarily from those who had, uh, who, who took part in it. And, and that's, you know, whether they're volunteers and, um, whether they, you know, people that like worked for, for OBS or, or, you know, had any, had, you know, thousands and thousands of roles that were, that were filled, um, you know, what that looks like going forward for, for this year will, you know, certainly, certainly have an impact on the legacy of the games for sure. Well, hopefully, like, somehow we'll be all part of that event, hopefully come July or summer. Um, all right, let's get on to the next, uh, next question. Um, you already guaranteed your spot at the games because, again, uh, the, I, I think the IAF, they were, like, uh, they guaranteed all the spots of the people qualifying in 2020, uh, already qualified for 2020. Um, I'm wondering if that's been sort of an extra motivator just to keep working hard and it's validation for what you've already done. Yeah, I think I was very, like, I, so um, I was lucky enough. The 50K race walk is one of those events that you don't do very many of them every year. So because of that, our qualifying window is quite, quite big. Um, so I, I actually managed to qualify back in a race in Japan in April of 2019. Um, and Athletics Canada, who's our governing body, had originally set a May, a May date for selecting athletes in the marathon and the 50K walk. Um, the rest of the team was going to be selected in the end of June, but, um, you know, because they basically, they don't want, um, the marathoners and 50 K athletes to be chasing qualifiers into June, because if you do a 50 K or a marathon in June to qualify for Olympics, you're not going to be prepared to run another one at right. the end of July. Like, um, so they, you know, try to select, um, earlier to, you know, to kind of persuade athletes to then focus on on the Olympics. So after the games got postponed, we managed, or, or, you know, athletics kind of decided that they were still going to go ahead with their selection in May. So, you know, I was lucky enough along with um, Trevor Hoffbauer and Dana Podorsky in the, in the marathons um, to be selected for the team in May, despite the fact that the Olympics were still, you know, 15 months away at that point. Um, so that's a huge load off. I mean, that basically, you know, I had a teammate who was in Slovakia in March on the Friday, getting ready for a race on the Sunday. He was, you know, just the fittest he'd ever been. He was trying to, he was 50K race. He was going to try and qualify and get that standard. And, you know, on the Friday, because in March, you know, things every day, things were getting canceled. Yeah. And, and there was so much up in the air. Like, some, you didn't know what was going to happen and what was going to get canceled. And so on the Friday, they canceled this 50K. And there was about, you know, probably two dozen athletes who were trying to use that race to qualify for the Olympics. And at this point, we didn't know if the Olympics were going to go ahead or not. So, they then there was a 50k on the sunday in france so on the on the friday or the saturday or whatever the, you know two dozen of these athletes all then traveled to france hoping that that because that one hadn't been canceled yet and they got there and then you know a few hours after they arrived that one got canceled oh man and it was just like you know there's so many athletes who were chasing that qualifying or, or who, who 
when the games were postponed were the fittest they'd ever been because they had some sort of qualifying coming up that month or next month. Um, and now they have to get that fit again for a qualifying that they might not know when that is. Like, so mentally, not only physically is that incredibly hard to do, but mentally that's, you know, so much stress and anxiety. Whereas I was so lucky to, you know, my focus was always on, I, I just have to be fit in August. And so in March, I wasn't very fit. I wasn't in very good shape. And so when the game got postponed, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Like, I, <laughs> I actually have like, this actually isn't a bad thing for me because I was struggling with some injuries and, and this, that, and the other thing. So it was kind of a blessing disguise for me. Um, but, um, but even still, like looking at ahead to next year, like I don't have to worry about, oh, I need to be fit by March. And I need, oh, what races are going to happen? Or will I have a qualifying race? I can, again, just focus on, okay, I just need, I need, all I need to do is be ready to go on, August 6th. And that's all I have to think about and work towards. So that's a huge load off and, and a huge mental um, yeah, motivator to just be okay, just focus on that, on that. And that's all I got to think about uh, makes things a lot easier. Yeah, uh, that actually leads perfectly into the next question I have for you. Um, has your, how has your mindset changed uh, going into these games? Like, uh, compared to when you were racing in Rio and now leading up to a pretty pandemic affected Tokyo 2020, what sort of changes have you made to your mindset, if any? Yeah, compared to Rio, it's it's kind of amazing to to, to look back on. You know, heading to Rio, I was uh, I still hadn't really proven myself. Uh, I'd won Pan Am Games the year before in 2015. Um, and then at the end of 2015, I had, I had broken the cane record in the 50 K and I, I kind of, I knew that I knew that I thought I belonged at the front. Um, but I was probably one of the few that felt that way. Um, and so I like that, you know, going into, into Rio, just having this sensation of like being the underdog and like, you know, having this like very big desire to prove myself to, to, everyone else because like I felt like I was ready for it and, and I felt like I was proving it to like other people and then after the 20k I, I did really well in the 20k in Rio finished 10th and that was my best ever result up until that point and then the 50k was like okay well this is just icing on top like I don't really care what happens I'm just gonna go out and like you know try to stick with the leaders and and see what happens and 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 lo and behold I, I you know managed to finish fourth and and you know, was just I led the race until 40k and and you know, it was kind of like a oh, okay I, I belong here now type of moment and um, the next the next four years have kind of been oh I belong here and then trying to win medals um, at least 2017 and 2018 that blew up horribly in my face <laughs> um, and then so 2019 was a big adjustment of like okay like go back to what worked in 2016 and go back to you know focusing on on having your best race and, and knowing that if you just do your best that yeah, you might end up on the podium. And, and in 2019 world championships, like I went into that race in Doha, brutal conditions. We're racing at 1130 at night cause it's so hot in, in, in Qatar. And, um, there was, there's so many different element aspects of it. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go out in there. I'm just gonna do my own thing and see what happens. And, and again, kind of like painted myself as the underdog, um, and was able to come away with, with a bronze medal. Um, so, you know, after that race last year, I kind of, that kind of like sparked my mindset for, for Tokyo of being like, okay, I, again, I want to just, you know, I want the focus to be on what I can do and, and not worry about 
thinking that I need to win a medal and, and knowing that if I just do what I need to do, yeah, there's a good chance that I'll be in that, in that fight for a medal. Um, and if it comes, it comes, if it doesn't, like as long as I have my best race, that's all I can ask for. Uh, so that's certainly sort of the mindset that I'm trying to take into Tokyo and, and the delay of the year is kind of like, I've been able to paint that as a positive in my mind, because I got nothing else going on in my life. This is, this is what I do. And you know, I don't have I, I, a year delay is, is fine. I, I wasn't planning on retiring. I wasn't planning on going back to school. I like a one year delay doesn't really affect my life in any major way. Whereas some of my competitors, you know, some of the guys that will also be fighting for medals are. Uh, you know, they have families, they had kids, they're at the end of their career, they, they were maybe going to retire after Tokyo anyways. So a one year delay for them is so much more impactful. And, it, and you know, it, it, there's so many more people involved, spouses and, and children and stuff that have to work, be worked around. Whereas like me, I was like, okay, like, all right, next year. All right, let's start working towards <laughs> next year. Like, I just had to like, kind of convince, I had to tell myself, hey, Evan, do you want to like, keep this up for another year yeah okay cool all right done like that <laughs> there was no conversations to be had um so I, i've painted that as best i can as like an advantage and, and knowing that like you know i'll hopefully have have been able to gain or, or lost less than some of my competitors going to next year so again like just trying to like you know use the situation to my advantage in any way i can mentally to to you know build that confidence and um you know help things out that way has been you know, a, a good test and, and something that I've been quite proud of myself being able to do. You definitely should be proud. That sounds like, I mean, it's like, why not go for another Olympics, right? Uh, has the Canadian Olympic Committee, like Canada, or any of your sponsors, how, have they helped with anything like currently, like how, like this transition, this gap period? Like, has the communication been all right? Have you been, like, have they helped with your transition into like this weird gap year between the games now? Yeah, um, this, the Canadian Olympic Committee has been, has been amazing, um, both in terms of communication and support. Um, you know, none of our funding was interrupted, um, and, and basically all of our funding was carried over to to this year as well. Because you know you couldn't really prove yourself. You know you couldn't prove yourself that you deserve to be refunded because there's no no opportunities to prove yourself. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been really great. And, and Canadian Olympic committee even found some additional funds to help, help people, help some people out. Um, uh, so, you know, in that aspect of it, it's been great, like not having to worry and, um, so much of, of, um, you know, athletes, professional athletes, like income comes from prize money. Um, I luck, luckily race walking isn't a big prize money sport. So I've never, I've never, um, you know, relied on that income. It's always kind of been like a, Oh, there's prize money. That's a nice bonus. Um, but you know, for a lot of athletes, like not having, not being able to compete meant losing out on, on tons of, of whether it be prize money or sponsorship money and stuff like that. Um, so again, I, I was lucky that, that most of my, my, pretty much all of my income streams were, were carried through and, and, and continued. So it was one less thing to have to worry about, which I was so lucky with. And then, yeah, in terms of communication, like COCs kept us up to date and, and provided us with, um, you know, anytime there was new information that came to light, it's, it was passed along to us like very expediently. So um, yeah, we've been really lucky in that regard. That's awesome. Like having that sense of stability and like this, 
I, and I have to say again, unprecedented times. That's a pretty valuable thing to have. Um, and has there anything like just from a has there anything that you've taken from your time at UBC, whether it's from your BKIN degree or just your experience as a student? Has anything that you've taken from university like been able to carry over and help you during this time? Um, may, probably not specifically to dealing with. Um, uh, with, with, with the pandemic, but I mean, certainly, certainly, my my university years of being an introvert and not leaving my uh, my residence um, has certainly <laughs> been helpful in terms of not leaving my apartment. Uh, so that that's helped. But you know, my my time at UBC, I mean, certainly, uh, well, I mean, my degree first and foremost. Like I, I set all my own training. I. Uh, you know, my co- I, have, I have an amazing coach who I've had since I was 10 years old, but we're basically like, it's more like a mentor, uh, mentor role now than it is like a coaching role. Like I, I set my own training program. Um, you know, I stay involved with, with all the latest, um, you know, whether it be heat adaptation or altitude training or anything like that. Like I, I try to stay on top of all the research and, and do that to my advantage as I can. And, um, so, you know, I, I use my degree on a daily basis in, in my own training, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, and then the other element of it is just like, again, like most of my social relationships that I have, um, in Vancouver are the people I ran with at school and the people that I went to school with. So, um, certainly, you know, at the times when we have been able to go and see other people and, and, you know, whether it's been going to 33 acres and, and grabbing a six pack and then sitting in the park next to it, next door with a couple blankets, um, having a few beers with friends, like those all trace back to my university days of, of those were the friendships I, I made and fostered then. So, um, you know, that element of it has certainly been there because most of my other friendships are, you know, guys that live in Sweden or Australia or New Zealand. <laughs> I have a very um, international group of, of close social relationships. So um, the ones I do have that are from here, a lot of them are from university. That's awesome. And just one last question. Um, is, are there any cool projects that you're uh, currently working on outside of race walking that you'd want to share or anything? Uh, oh, not too much. I'm a, I'm a kid sport ambassador, uh, which has been one of the most um, rewarding uh, elements of being able to be an athlete is to sort of share my journey and my story and, and, and use, you know, sport has sport has made me to the person I am. And, and um, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't know where I would be without sport. And I was lucky enough that I had that opportunity because my parents were able to, to give me that opportunity. And there's a lot of families out there that, that, you know, simply just can't give their kids that opportunity. So kids sports, an awesome organization because they just simply break down that financial barrier to give kids that chance. So, um, you know, if, if people are, are, are willing and able in these difficult times to support organizations, um, kids sport is definitely one that I would recommend because, you know, we're seeing, especially now, like those social, those social connections are so important. And, um, you know, we've seen from, from, from kids going to school online, what, what that's meant for, for losing out on, on those social connections that, that they crave. And, um, you know, sport is just another avenue where they can get those social connections, grow, learn, um, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, very near and dear to my heart there. And then the other day I, I, I was, I got caught in a rabbit hole of, um, looking up how far it would be to walk to all 53 SkyTrain stations in one go. Um, and it worked out to be about 99 kilometers, about a hundred kilometers dead on to walk 
every SkyTrains agent. So I think in 2021, I want to uh, figure out uh, some sort of fundraiser, which will include me walking 100K to every single SkyTrain station in Vancouver. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, that's I've, I've gotten that idea in my head. And the problem I have is when I get an idea in my head, I pretty much always have to eventually see it, see it through to fruition. So that is going to be awesome to see if you pull it off. <laughs> Um, I think that just about wraps it up. And thanks again, Evan, for sparing your time to join us today. If all goes well, we'll both be in Japan next summer. And so the best of luck from here, uh, from us here at Thunderbird Eye and UBC. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to chat. Uh, take care, man. Cheers, you too. We will now have a quick break for ads and PSAs before we get to the news roundup and the Thunderbirds alum of the week. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. Do you like laughing, hilarity, radical thought-provoking creativity, and laughing? UBC Improv is UBC's home for improvisational comedy, theater made up on the spot. Like us on Facebook to learn when our next shows are. Search for us on YouTube for our film sketches. And follow us on Twitter because we want the followers. UBC Improv. Insert cheesy slogan here. Welcome back. You're listening to Thunderbird Eye on CITR 101.9. Now here's Diana Hong with the News Roundup, followed by Byron Wang with the Thunderbirds alum of the week. Hey everyone, welcome back to CITR 101.9 at Thunderbird Eye. This is Diana Hong bringing you the most up-to-date UBC Thunderbirds news. Last week, men's soccer head coach Jesse Simones won the award that was nominated by the Vancouver Whitecaps, which was Major League Soccer's 26th Community MVP title. This is an award presented to those who serve their communities. Simones has been involved with the Hope and Health program, running clinics and camps in Indigenous communities around the province since 2016. Even with COVID-19, Simones and the Thunderbirds were still able to teach kids from kindergarten to grade 9, working on fundamental movement and soccer technical skills. This past week, our women's soccer team has also been supporting the University of Victoria Vikes fundraiser by running 5 kilometers to support Mackenzie Rigg. Brig is one of the Vikes playing for their men's soccer team and was recently diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer. With the new lockdown restrictions, no tournaments and competitions are allowed until December 7th. Hopefully the COVID-19 curve flattens out so our Thunderbirds could safely compete again. That concludes the Thunderbirds news for today. Up next, Byron will take over to introduce the Thunderbirds alum of the week. And hello, everybody. For those tuning in for the first time, this segment, which we call Alum of the Week, 
looks at a former UBC athlete's life, not only in the world of sports, but what their life is like outside of athletics as well. And with no time frame in mind, there will be stories from all throughout the history of UBC athletics. This week's alum dates back to the early 20th century, when UBC athletics was just starting off. Art Lord, a source of inspiration to UBC since the school's inception, started his UBC athletics career in 1915, playing on the varsity rugby team and varsity basketball team, UBC's first teams in both sports. In addition to playing on those two teams, he was also the coach of the first UBC women's varsity basketball team, despite being a first-year student. Lord then served in World War I, where he was wounded in action November 1917, and returned as a student to UBC in 1918 to 1919, where he continued to play on the varsity basketball team and coached both the varsity rugby team and the women's basketball team. In 1919 to 1920, Lord was selected to serve as UBC's first Men's Athletic Association president. The same year, he captained the rugby team, and according to the UBC, Lord was considered one of the three best forwards in the city. The team itself was incredible, winning the city championship, and at the same time, his basketball expertise was utilized yet again as he coached the women's basketball team to the city championship and the Farrell Cup. In his graduating year of 1920 to 1921, he was selected to coach the UBC rugby team once again, where they performed exceptionally well. The team won the Vancouver Championship Miller Cup and scored a historic 12-0 victory over Stanford, which at the time was the top rugby team in the U.S. and its Olympic representative. This victory was a huge inspiration for a relatively young university actively seeking spirit and identity and is one of the most significant athletic victories in school history. And after his graduation in law from Osgoode Hall in Toronto, Lord returned to serve as the UBC Alumni Association president in 1925 to 1926 and as the alumni representative on the Big Block Committee. He was admitted to the bar in 1924 and from 1924 to 1957 was a member of the University Senate. And in 1940, he was elected to the University Board of Governors and served until 1957. Additionally, Lord was appointed county court judge in 1951, was named to the Supreme Court in 1955, and the Appeals Court in 1963. And that will wrap up this week's Alum of the Week. And with that, thank you for tuning in to Thunderbird Eye on CITR 101.9. Besides listening to the show, the best way to keep up to date with UBC Thunderbirds news is to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CITR Sports. Thank you again to Evan Dunphy for coming on the show. For Thunderbird Eye, this has been Jake McGrail, Mike Liu, Diana Hong, and Byron Wang. Thank you for tuning in, and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>